Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So we have some good news and bad news. <laughs> uh, the good news is today is our New York uh, Comic Con live podcast on the Reynolds pamphlet, which we're really excited about because we had a great time at that show and our audience was just fantastic. Uh, and the bad news is every single time we do a live show, when folks ask us if it's going to be an episode of the podcast, every time my answer is, Sure, unless something goes horribly awry with the recording. Uh, so something this, went this time. Yeah, was the time we've always said time. we haven't had to really invoke that phrase. Yeah, and something went horribly awry with part of the recording, and <laughs> we're not sure exactly what happened. Uh, our team had done a really solid sound and technical check before we started, and everything was perfect. But apparently, when we actually started the show. Something had happened, and we were not... It wasn't perfect anymore. Fortunately, our producer, Noel, had come to New York with us, and he was filming the show, and as soon as he realized something had gone wrong, he uh, jumped over to the soundboard and he fixed it. But as a result, the first ten minutes of the show in that live recording are not usable. Correct. Our apologies. Yeah. We are really, really sorry this happened. This is an eventuality we fret over Every single time we do a live show, I mean, we it's kind of ridiculous, the steps that we take to try to make sure this never happens. So we're very sorry that we did. So what you are going to hear today, we'll start off with a studio version of the first act of this story to replace the unusable audio with what we're basically having a do-over on. And then uh, after our first break for a sponsor, we will join the New York show, which at that point will already be in progress. So... Now to get into the show, our little do-over that we're having, our mulligan, so to speak. Uh, not Hercules mulligan, that's a different thing. As anyone who has seen or listened to Hamilton knows, Alexander Hamilton had a torrid affair, and he wrote it down in a document that came to be known as the Reynolds pamphlet. Today, most folks probably imagine a pamphlet as like a piece of paper that's printed front and back and folded, maybe like a little triptych. Or maybe like two pieces of paper that are saddle-stapled. But this was not that. It is incredibly long and wordy, uh, and it can be hard to imagine what would drive somebody to write such a thing. And I have read it so that you do not have to. And that is what we are going to talk about today. And we said this a lot while we were promoting the show, but just, again, to clarify up front, there's nothing graphic in here, but it is about a political sex scandal. So judge for yourself whether it is appropriate for your kids or students, any of the younger history buffs that you listen with. In the summer of 1791, 23-year-old Maria Reynolds came to the Philadelphia home of Alexander Hamilton, who was in his mid-30s and he was serving as U.S. Secretary of the Treasury. Hamilton and his wife, Elizabeth Schuyler Hamilton, had been married for about 10 years at this point. But at this particular time, she and the Hamilton children were away in Albany visiting family. As Hamilton himself would later describe it, the Reynolds claimed that her husband had abused her and then abandoned her for another woman. And she said she was originally from New York and she was coming to Hamilton for help because he was a citizen of New York, too. And she thought maybe he could loan her some money so that she could get back to her family and her friends in New York. 
Hamilton wanted to help. He was known for trying to help people in need, which might have been another reason why Reynolds decided that he was the man to assist her, in addition to also both being from New York. But he didn't have any funds on him at the time that he could give her, so he asked where she lived, and he promised to visit in the evening. True to his word, he stopped by with a banknote. But when he got there... She took him up to the bedroom, and in Hamilton's words, quote, some conversation ensued from which it was quickly apparent that other than pecuniary consolation would be acceptable. And they went on with their other than pecuniary consolation for the rest of the summer and into the fall. By the time Mrs. Hamilton and the children came back, it seems like the affair had pretty much ended. And somewhere along the way, James Reynolds came back into his wife's life as well. Things were apparently quiet until December 15th of 1791, when Maria Reynolds wrote Hamilton this letter. Colonel Hamilton, dear sir, I have not time to tell you the cause of my present troubles, only that Mr. has wrote you, wrote to you this morning, and I know not whether you have got the letter or not, and he has swore that if you do not answer it, or if he does not see or hear from you today, he will write Mrs. Hamilton. He has just gone out, and I am alone. I think you had better come here one moment that you may know the cause. Then you will the better know how to act. Oh, my God, I feel more for you than myself and wish I had never been born to give you so much unhappiness. Do not write to him. No, not a line, but come here soon. Do not send or leave anything in his power. So that sounded like several sentences, but just to be clear... Beginning with, he has just gone out to the end. That is all written as one sentence. And in spite of Maria's warning him not to, Hamilton sent James Reynolds a note saying to call on him in his office. But at that point, James Reynolds had actually already written a letter of his own, also dated the 15th, although Hamilton didn't receive it right away. And this letter began, Sir, I am very sorry to find out that I have been so cruelly treated by a person that I took to be my best friend instead of that my greatest enemy. You have deprived me of everything that's near and dear to me, I discovered, whenever I came into the house. James Reynolds went on to describe having come home to find his wife crying and, on her part, insisting that it was only because she was reading something affecting. But then he found a letter his wife had written to another man. He had copied that letter, put the original back where he'd found it, and then followed his wife as she handed the original letter off to a black man to deliver. And he followed that man to his destination, and he wound up at Hamilton's door. According to James Reynolds' letter, he confronted his wife that night, and she told him that she had gone to see Alexander Hamilton for a loan, and that he had taken advantage of her in her heartbroken state. Mr. Reynolds went on to write, quote, You have made a whole family miserable. She says there is no other man that she care for in this world. Now, sir, you have been the cause of cooling her affections for me. He went on to say how much he loved his wife and how he was now determined to leave her and take their daughter with him. He ended on a threat. Quote, and I am determined to see you by some means or other, for you have made me an unhappy man forever. Put it to your own case and reflect one moment that you should know such a thing of your wife. Would you not have satisfaction? Yes. And so will I before one day passes me more. 
James Reynolds sent another letter on December 17th, which was a Saturday, telling Hamilton to meet him at the sign of the George on Tuesday morning at 8 o'clock, by which point he would have made up his mind on what direction he wanted to take regarding Hamilton's affair with his wife. And he said this delay until Tuesday was because he had just learned that his sister had died, and otherwise he would definitely want a resolution a whole lot sooner. So what followed was a series of meetings and letters in which James Reynolds sort of dithered about uh, on, as far as exactly what he wanted Hamilton to do. And Hamilton became increasingly frustrated with Reynolds' indecisiveness. Ultimately, Reynolds asked Hamilton for $1,000, saying that he would use it to leave his wife and take their daughter and resettle somewhere among friends. So Hamilton sent Reynolds a partial delivery of that money on the 22nd in the amount of $600, and he sent the rest on January 3rd. But it wasn't actually over at this point. James Reynolds wrote Hamilton again on the 17th of January, apparently still living with his wife, even though he had previously said he could not be reconciled to doing so. Now he claimed that Maria wanted to see Hamilton, but only as a friend. Uh, Over the next few months, James and Maria Reynolds each wrote to Hamilton periodically, and her letters read like, I mean, every teenage heartbroken love letter cliche in existence. She writes about being too bereft to leave her bed. She says things like, quote, your neglect has filled with the sharpest thorns. She talks about having a heart ready to burst with grief and says, quote, I can neither eat or sleep. I have been on the point of doing the most horrid acts that I shudder to think where I might be and what will become of me. James's letters, on the other hand, encourage Hamilton to visit his wife to soothe her pain and then to ask for money. Uh, you know, because they were friends. Uh, <laughs> he never made reference to the nature of Hamilton's relationship with Maria or what this, quote, comforting would involve. He just stressed that by the nature of their friendship... He was sure Hamilton could loan him some small amount of money. $30 here, $90 there, a $45 debt that he needed to pay. On May 2nd, 1792, James Reynolds wrote to Hamilton and forbade him from seeing his wife ever again. He was, among other things, really incensed that Hamilton refused to enter their house by the front door, which I don't know, from my point of view, when you're having an illicit affair with somebody, maybe it's better to go in the back way. But uh James was really mad about that, and he said, quote, Am I a person of such a bad character that you would not wish to be seen coming in my house in the front way? Of course, if you're only sneaking in and out through, like, the back or the side door, it looks a lot shadier than if you just go in <laughs> through the front. <laughs> um, Hamilton kept making these financial payments, though, fearful that if he did not, James Reynolds would indeed tell his wife, Hamilton's wife, about the affair. However, one of Reynolds' requests finally crossed a line. Dated on June 22nd, it was a request for a $300 loan that he planned to invest in a speculative venture. Hamilton's response, quote, It is utterly out of my power, I assure you, upon my honor, to comply with your request. Your note is returned. This whole cycle of writing to Hamilton and suggesting that he visit his wife and then asking him for money probably could have continued on indefinitely. But eventually, James Reynolds turned his attention uh, from blackmailing Alexander Hamilton onto a different crime, which was attempting to defraud the government. 
He had already been into some pretty shady speculative dealings, but then he and a clerk named Jacob Klingman, who worked for Representative Frederick A.C. Mullenberg of Pennsylvania, decided to set themselves up as the executors of the estate of a man who had a claim to be paid by the government. And the problem was that man was actually not dead. So a third accomplice, John Delabar, perjured himself, validating their claims about the estate of this actually living man. When this fraud came to light in November of 1792, both Reynolds and Klingman were arrested. While in jail, Reynolds tried to get Hamilton to help him, and Hamilton refused. So Reynolds started to suggest, and then insist, that he had incriminating information against a certain highly placed government official. For his part, Klingman kept dropping hints that his friend and co-conspirator knew things that could greatly harm Alexander Hamilton. Unsurprisingly, this pretty quickly turned into a political issue, with Democratic-Republicans deciding to look into whatever it was that Klingman and Reynolds were talking about to see if it might be useful to them against their political opponent, Federalist Alexander Hamilton. Mullenberg teamed up with fellow Democratic-Republicans James Monroe and Abraham Venable to try to figure out what Reynolds was talking about. They were extremely interested in the possibility of taking down such a powerful figure in the Federalist Party, and they launched a secret congressional investigation into Alexander Hamilton after Reynolds claimed that he knew of several illegal financial transactions that Hamilton had made. Uh, He also said that Hamilton had basically forced himself to share his wife, which was a claim that Maria Reynolds confirmed. So we're going to get into the details of that congressional investigation, and we will pick up with the section of our episode that was recorded in New York after we first pause for a sponsor break. That sponsor is The Great Courses. We love creating episodes to share with you because in the process, we get to learn so much, too. And that's why The Great Courses Plus is so perfect for us and why you should be discovering it also. You can get unlimited access to a large library of engaging video lectures presented by just amazing award-winning professors, just like we do. So... So many fascinating courses covering everything from historical events to scientific inventions to cooking. There's martial arts. There's just everything you could think of. And new courses are added all the time. We recently watched Great Minds of the Medieval World, which was completely fascinating uh, because it looked at important medieval figures, including the only woman of her time allowed to preach openly and Europe's first professional female writer. So with the Great Courses Plus, you can stream as many different lectures as you want anytime, anywhere from a smartphone, tablet, laptop, or on your television. Sign up for the Great Courses Plus today because they're giving our listeners a special offer, and that's an entire month of unlimited access to all of their lectures for free. So start your free month today. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash stuff. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash stuff. So I'll get back to the show now. Yeah, so uh, now let's sober up and right back to it. Uh, On December 15th, 1792, Speaker of the House Frederick Mullenberg, Senator James Monroe, and uh, Representative Abraham Venable, who are played in the musical Hamilton by Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and Aaron Burr, confronted Alexander Hamilton about these allegations that James Reynolds had made against him. And Hamilton basically told them everything, that he had had an affair with Reynolds' wife and that Reynolds had blackmailed him and that all these various payments he had made were his money not the government's money. 
And Hamilton owned up to the fact that he had been wrong to have this affair and really foolish to let things drag on for so many months. And he basically showed receipts for the whole thing. There's a whole cartoon that runs in my head the second I think about that. Uh, he also said he was pretty sure that Maria and James Reynolds had actually been conspiring together this whole time against him. Like from the start, this was conceived as a, a way to get at him. And uh, that her original story of abuse and abandonment had simply been made up as a ruse to get Hamilton's sympathy. So these three investigators later on wrote a joint statement, which said in part... Last night, we waited on Colonel H when he informed us of a particular connection with Mrs. R, the period of its commencement and circumstances attending it, his visiting her at Inskeeps, the frequent supplies of money to her and her husband uh, on that account, his duress by them for the fear of disclosure and anxiety to be relieved from it and them. To support this, he showed a great number of letters from Reynolds and herself commencing in early 1791. He acknowledged all letters in a disguised hand in our possession to be his. So we didn't really say that before, but he was disguising his handwriting when writing to this woman. We left him under an impression. Our suspicions were removed. And that would have been that. But of course it's not. Uh, James Monroe had, apparently without the knowledge of Mullenberg and Venable, made copies of those letters, which he gave to another prominent Democratic Republican, Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> awesome. Whoever just said, oh no, I love you. <laughs> uh, it's Possible that John Beckley, who was clerk of the House of Representatives, also made a copy during the investigation. And over the next few years, these copies of these letters kind of lurked and hung around, and rumors variously circulated about Hamilton maybe having had some kind of dalliance. So in addition to these vague hints of some kind of extramarital goings-on, uh, Hamilton also received his share of criticism and accusations over his actual job as Secretary of the Treasury, which he was doing at this point. In 1793, Democratic Republicans in the House of Representatives tried to have him removed from office, and the result was a document called Resolutions on the Secretary of the Treasury, which today are more known as the Giles Resolutions, which makes me think there's a vampire slayer involved in some way. Uh, they're called that because they were perp- they were purportedly orchestrated by Virginia Congressman William Branch Giles, but really it was Thomas Jefferson. And these resolutions allege that Hamilton had gone against the law, public interest, and the president in how he had handled foreign loans and the nation's money. And it ended by saying, quote, resolved that the secretary of the treasury has been guilty of maladministration in the duties of his office and should, in the opinion of Congress, be removed from his office by the president of the United States. The House and Senate both issued similar sets of resolutions on January 23rd of 1793. In response to all this, uh, in very little time, Alexander Hamilton produced 200 pages of immaculate documentation demonstrating his innocence. Because apparently he just was like, here are my receipts. They are organized. They are indexed. I have a, a codex of what's what. It's up, here you go. Just do that. Like color-coded stickers. How he operated, apparently. Uh, 
Uh, and we've also done a whole show about the Whiskey Rebellion in 1794 and Hamilton's recommendations to very heavily tax whiskey in spite of knowing it was going to infuriate people and be just about impossible to enforce. I love that so much that a duck just quacked. Um, I do. No shade. I love that sound. Um, so it wasn't like he didn't have, you know, other documented issues of people not liking what he was doing. Yeah, that's that's it's definitely not an issue. That his his secretary of the tre- of the treasury tenure was not something that was just universally met with acclaim and support. He had enemies for sure. And in 1795, he resigned and he went back to New York to practice law. But then, uh, in the summer of 1797 political writer James Callender published a book which was called The History of the United States for 1796. And this book is very critical of Hamilton pretty much every time his name comes up, and it pieces together a lot of the letters, notes, and payments, as we already talked about, but with a much more sinister conclusion. His conclusion is that Alexander Hamilton was using James Reynolds to orchestrate his own illegal speculation, bringing in some $30,000 in illicit profits. Uh, also in the book was the statement that Hamilton had debauched Mrs. Reynolds and that she had burned all of her husband's correspondence with him at Hamilton's request. And in response to this book, Hamilton, who we know to be a man of few words, uh, very quickly wrote a letter to the editor of the Federalist Gazette, which was also picked up and published elsewhere, stating that the documents calendar had printed were genuine, but that they had nothing to do with any sort of financial corruption whatsoever. He promised more detail later, and he set about trying to rally Monroe, Mullenberg, and Venable to back him up, since they had earlier cleared him of suspicion. But to Hamilton's apparent complete total surprise, uh, from a political point of view, the Democratic-Republican uh, reaction to this book was not so concerned with the whole stealing the government's money and illegally speculating with it part. They cared a whole lot more about this allegation of his extramarital affair. I mean, today we're like, yeah, of course. Like, we we live in the world today. Sadly, yes. Yeah, but uh, Hamilton was shocked, shocked, and so he categorically he he also was sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? If he categorically denied all of the accusations, it was going to be incredibly easy to prove that he was lying. Like, too many people knew about this affair at this point for him to be like, no, I didn't do any of that. Uh, and if if he was lying about the affair. If he were to take that route, then people would naturally assume that he was also lying about all this financial wrongdoing, even though like that he had some pretty strong evidence that he was not. And even though he was no longer the Secretary of the Treasury anymore, if if people began to believe he was a liar about all of these financial things that would ruin his marriage and his political career and undermine the fiscal policy that he had built for the United States, which at this point was basically still in its diapers. It had not been a country for very long. Here's Holly doesn't laughing. like that part of the screen. So while we were looking over these notes, I just wrote gross next to the word diapers. Because <laughs> yeah, I'm scared of babies, y'all. I don't. Godspeed to those of you that have them, but I couldn't. Uh, so to come clean about everything and attempt to protect his political legacy and the nation's economic policy, Hamilton wrote the document that came to be known as the Reynolds Pamphlet. He strongly denounced these accusations of financial wrongdoing, and he confessed everything that he had done regarding this affair, and he once again backed it all up, including reprinting as part of it a huge pile of correspondence. 
Who has seen, or better yet, read The Princess Bride? You you know how there's a lot of skipping to the good parts. Uh, There's a lot of that to do in the Reynolds pamphlet. It is 98 pages long. 98 pages. More than 11,000 words. So 37 of these pages are his own account of this whole thing, and then sort of the index to the letters, and then the other 58 pages um, are things like all of the Reynolds's letters, Maria's being like just very uh, free in their non-use of punctuation, um, and even more weirdness in spelling than you would expect from a document from that time period. I, I, we're on the show pretty. Uh, We've said pretty clearly, like, don't don't go around policing other people's grammar. But I, these letters are very particular in their weird misuse of spelling and grammar in a way that you just feel like there is a, a flighty teenage bird twittering at you. <laughs> and he reprinted all that. Uh, <laughs> and we joked at one point that we were going to do a dramatic reading of the Reynolds pamphlet for this show. <laughs> but it really would not have been so great. It would have been about four times as long (laughs) and a lot of misspelling. Uh, And even the title of this, this particular document is really long. It's actual title is observations on certain documents contained in number five and six of the history of the United States for the year 1796, in which the charge of speculation against Alexander Hamilton, late secretary of the treasury is fully refuted. So, in terms of snappy headline writing, I'm going to give him a D minus, but an A for effort. For the Hamilton fans, you know that part where he's arguing with Aaron Burr, and he's like, "Here's an itemized list of 20 years of disagreements." That's totally. You mean, sweet Jesus! Like, you can read all of these things on the internet too, and like all of Aaron Burr's letters are like, uh, "I have a problem with you, Hamilton. Here it is." And then Hamilton is like, "Here are my three pages." Of, like, really tiny writing of a million things. There you go. Uh, so, there are also scans of the original document of this on the internet. And you can read them. Uh, including all this correspondence between Hamilton and the Reynoldses, which is included in the appendices. And there's this added layer of either frustration or hilarity, depending on how you want to look at it. Because it uses the long S, which looks like an F. So it's the charge against me is a connection with one James Reynolds for the purposes of improper speculation. Uh, (laughs) Fortunately, the kind people in like the the archives, like the the National Archives, or or I forgot now the name of that actual agency, uh, have transcribed it so you can read it without the long S's that look like F's. Uh, and Hamilton begins his pamphlet, pamphlet, uh, with a lengthy denunciation of Jacobinism. This is, of course, a term that arose from the French Revolution. Go French Revolution. Uh, the Jacobin Club was a radical political club that eventually became increasingly associated with Robespierre and violence and the reign of terror. And in the wake of the French Revolution, other nations began to use the term Jacobin and Jacobinism to describe other political extremist groups. And in the U.S., it was a name that Federalist newspapers used to describe the Democratic-Republican Party. So this denunciation goes on for a while. He 
compares Jacobinism to war, famine, and pestilence and says that Jacobinism's political gains are due to slander and lies and maliciously tarnishing the good names of good people. He defends his own, quote, unblemished pecuniary reputation upon taking the office of the Secretary of the Treasury. And then he summarizes some previous allegations of financial uh, misdoings that he was consistently able to refute before finally mentioning the history of the United States for the year 1796 after about 1,800 other words of writing. It's a busy bee. Uh, and that's when he gets to one of the two bits of the pamphlets that are actually in Hamilton. Quote, the charge against me is a connection with one James Reynolds for purposes of improper pecuniary speculation. My real crime is an amorous connection with his wife for a considerable time with his privity and connivance, if not originally brought on by a combination between the husband and wife with the design to extort money from me. Yeah, Lin-Manuel Miranda shortened that last bit to knowing consent. (laughs) And also left out the word pecuniary because it doesn't scan very well. So uh, Hamilton says that he can't make this confession without a blush. He asks for forgiveness for even having to talk about it in the first place and then says, quote, I can never cease to condemn myself for the pang which it may inflict in a bosom eminently entitled to all my gratitude, fidelity, and love, but that bosom will approve that not even at so great an expense I should effectually wipe away a more serious stain from a name which it cherishes with no less elevation than tenderness. And so that is this nice little nod to the best of wives and best of women who he cheated on with Maria Reynolds <laughs> and is now telling the whole world about in even more greater detail than James Callender already had done. And then he walks through all the things that we've already talked about, like the whole drama of how it played out, although he doesn't reference 90210 like we did. Um <laughs> And he calls James Reynolds, quote, an obscure, unimportant, and profligate man, discussing Reynolds' other attempts to defraud the government and his co-conspirators on that score, before finally getting to the part where a young woman showed up at his house one day soliciting these other-than-pecuniary comforts, and then says, quote, after this, I had frequent meetings with her, most of them at my own house, Mrs. Hamilton with her children being absent on a visit to her father. No. (laughs) Have you read this? Okay. Uh, He sums up this situation. The intercourse with Mrs. Reynolds in the meantime continued. And though, yeah, he didn't mean it that way, but we know what he means. Uh, And though various reflections in which a further knowledge of Reynolds' character and the suspicion of some concert between the husband and wife were apart induced me to wish a cessation of it, yet her conduct made it extremely difficult to disentangle myself. All the appearances of violent attachment and of agonizing distress at the idea of a relinquishment were played off with a most imposing art. In other words could not stop having an affair with that woman because she was too sad. I feel ways about things, but we're going to keep moving. Well, um, so here's what I'm going to say. We on purpose are not talking about his wife, right? Like, I feel like when, whenever there's a political scandal, there's way too much focus on what the wife is up to. Like, let's, let's, let's just let her have her privacy. Uh, but with Maria Reynolds, uh, like, her husband was willing to throw her under the bus 
to get out of jail. And Alexander Hamilton was willing to throw her under the bus to try to get out of political trouble. And the Democratic Republicans were willing to throw her under the bus to try to take down Alexander Hamilton. And then the newspapers were willing to throw her under the bus to sell newspaper copies. So, like, there are so many ways that this whole affair could have started. And only one of them starts with her being, like, a willing, consenting participant not under duress. So I feel pretty bad for her. Yeah. <laughs> I have issues. I mean, I see all of those points. Like, I do, I, I do think she was probably manipulated terribly. And because she was not a person considered to have a position of power that could be lost, it was very easy to make her the scapegoat and say, oh, there's really no consequence at that point. But I just still have that whole thing of, like, don't sleep with people you don't <laughs> that goes for multiple people person. in the story yeah 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 hey, thomas oh Jefferson. yeah that's not thomas just for her did not have room to be talking about anybody else's affairs <laughs> uh but now it's time for another sponsor break so we'll just leave that note there <laughs> i don't know about everybody else but when i am tempted to snack and all i can find is junk food i am never great at relying on my self-control i always eat the junk food Fortunately, you can start snacking healthy with NatureBox. NatureBox makes snacks that actually taste great and are better for you, created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners, so you can feel great about snacking. One of my big favorites is the peanut butter nom-noms. They are good and hearty and chewy and great for when I need maybe a quick breakfast on the go. NatureBox recently made their service even better. Now you can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel anytime. It's simple. Go to naturebox.com and check out their snack catalog. There are more than a hundred snacks to choose from, and they're constantly adding delicious new snacks. Choose the snacks you want, and they will deliver them right to your door. With NatureBox, you'll never get bored. There are new snacks every month inspired by real customer feedback. And if you ever try a snack you don't like, NatureBox will replace it for free. Right now, you'll save even more. NatureBox is offering Stuff You Missed in History Class fans 50% off your first order when you go to naturebox.com slash history. That's naturebox.com slash history for 50% off your first order. One last time, naturebox.com slash history. So uh, what we didn't mention before is that after all of this, Alexander Hamilton in the, the pamphlet then walks through all of those letters that we've talked about and all of their various levels of spelling and grammar, um, which are also reprinted as part of it. This is the second time that Holly has seamlessly picked up a thing I skipped completely over in a script I wrote. <laughs> You're not supposed to tell them. <laughs> So Alexander Hamilton was hoping that by publishing such a thorough and well-documented refutation of all of this, that he would prove that he had been steadfastly honest with the nation's money and that his only moral failing was a private one that related only to his marriage. It had nothing to do with the nation's money. I sort of feel like uh, this is something, like I imagine an episode of Scandal where Olivia Pope came over and was like, you got to get ahead of this. But he didn't. He didn't get ahead of it very well. No, because instead the confession that he laid out in the Reynolds pamphlet really, really damaged his reputation. Newspapers picked it up and they printed all of these titillating and mocking pieces about it, including poems and songs that were written, uh, as well as other jibes. One example in one newspaper, quote, 
Dear Colonel, did you never hear, if you did not, I think tis queer, that only fools do kiss and tell, even though they tell their story well. So, that's some serious shade. That's... These accounts also often held up Maria Reynolds as this virtuous and pure woman of impeccable character who Hamilton had basically come along and wronged and ruined. And... Like, this was a sort of a theme that drew a lot from romantic fiction that was really popular at the time. They kind of were setting it up, playing along the same ways as, like, kind of the more scandalous, bodice-rippery kind of novels. But, like, they literally had her letters she wrote to him in front of them when they were writing these things. And like we said before, like, they're they're full of mistakes. Uh, <laughs> like, really full of mistakes. They don't sound as full of mistakes in the bits that we read because I had to like clean up the typing because we were going to read them in front of you on stage. And we needed to not be like, wait, what is she saying? Uh, but in, in addition to the mistakes, they have this very breathless, overwrought childishness to them. And when you compare that to his wife, Elizabeth Schuyler Hamilton, who was witty and smart and actually helped Hamilton draft a lot of his own documents it's really easy for a person to wonder, like, dude, what in the world? That is your wife. Why are you messing around over here? Like, that doesn't make sense. Well, that is predicated on the presumption that smart is always what people are most attracted to. It's not? <laughs> Tracy, we're going to have a long talk later. <laughs> I'm going to tell you all about it. Uh but apart from Maria's letters, which were literally right there in front of people who were portraying her as some kind of symbol of wronged patriotic virtue, there was also this testimony of people who actually knew her. Uh, when later recanting his previous praise of her, John Wood wrote, quote, I have been informed from the best authority, from the authority of her own acquaintances, to have been one of those unfortunates who, destitute of every regard for virtue or honor, traffic with the follies of youth, and lay their snares to entrap the feeling heart and benevolent mind. Such was the origin of her acquaintance with Mr. Hamilton, whose unsuspecting generosity became the victim of her art and duplicity. And that's kind of where I want to go, generosity. But that's... <laughs> I'm really a harpy about this whole affair. I'm sorry. <laughs> So, you know, we said before the whole reason that these letters stuck around is because James Monroe had secretly kept a copy of them. And Hamilton was really, really angry at James Monroe over his role in all of this and actually attempted to challenge him to a duel. This duel was prevented due to negotiations of Monroe's second, Aaron Burke. <laughs> Uh, and even though this whole thing did really, really lower Hamilton's public esteem, and it made him the butt of a lot of jokes in the newspaper right up until his death in 1804, it was not a decisive torpedo of his whole political career as it is sometimes portrayed. His ongoing feuds with other political figures, including John Adams and Aaron Burr, were a way bigger factor in all of that. And his marriage to Elizabeth did weather this whole affair, even though... She does seem to have also carried a grudge against James Monroe for the rest of his life. He died in 1825 after, of course, serving as the fifth president of the United States. 
Callender went on to reprint the story again in 1798 before publishing a different pamphlet accusing John Adams of public corruption, which landed him in jail for sedition in 1800. Thomas Jefferson ultimately pardoned him. Uh, However, it was Callender who famously published allegations of Jefferson's involvement with Sally Hemings, an enslaved woman that he had inherited in 1774 in the Richmond Recorder on September 1st of 1802. Yeah, Thomas Jefferson did not have room to be... Not a leg to stand on in the whole judging. Right, no. (laughs) He was not on the moral high ground here. Uh, Regarding the Reynoldses, it's really not 100% clear whether, like, James Reynolds hatched a blackmail scheme that Maria was eventually in on or whether she was in on it from the beginning or whether she started the affair herself and then joined him in the blackmail scheme later. Although it does seem that by the end of it, the two of them had become co-conspirators. However, their marriage did not last. They divorced in 1793, with Maria being represented by Aaron Burr. (laughs) He's like that rule in comedy where if you say it enough times, like it becomes funny again. It's just like Aaron Burr and also Aaron Burr. Did I mention Aaron Burr? Hey, you guys, Aaron Burr. Uh, Uh, Yeah, and then, you know, eventually. But after this divorce, she then married her husband's former co-conspirator, Jacob Klingman, and moved with him to Virginia. This is actually the moment where I go, really? Not all the times where Aaron Burr is like preventing duels and being her liar, but the part where she divorces her husband and then marries the guy that he went to prison with for trying to take the government claim of a dead person who was really alive. However, we're going to end with Maria Reynolds. She seems to have turned her life around in her later years. I will say as many silly teenage girls who write overwrought letters. She wasn't a teenager at the time, but they so sound like a teenager. Uh, You know, she turned her life around. She eventually married a respected French physician. She joined an evangelical church, the first reformed Dutch church of Philadelphia. Uh, Allegedly, she did write her own pamphlet at one point, telling her side of the story, but it was never published, and I wasn't able to find, like, documentation of it. Uh, toward the end of her life, people began to describe her as, quote, serious, sedate, and religious. She died in 1828 at the age of 66. And that is the Reynolds pamphlet. So that was the Reynolds pamphlet. Thank you so, so much for everybody who came to see it. We apologize again for having to start a little bit late because the line to get in was so long. Uh, I guess that's maybe a good problem to have at a live show. I mean, ob- obviously, <laughs> no problem will be better, but... <laughs> yeah, but it's because we have amazing listeners and they were all there, queued yeah. up and ready. Uh, and thanks also for the folks who stayed behind afterwards to meet us and talk to us. We talked to so many awesome people. Uh, a number of people brought us little tidbits to take home with us, including listener Sophie, who we've talked about before, who makes such amazing, amazing, like, dress interpretations of episodes. Uh, she brought us another, uh, pile of beautiful drawings. Oh, they're so gorgeous. Um, yeah, so, and, and we, we, a number of folks, uh, just, just brought us little things, little, little knickknacks to take home, which was so thoughtful and appreciated. 
Yeah, and we also need to issue some thanks as well to New York Comic Con, New York Comic Con Presents, and Read Pop, and particularly Matt Wazowski, Jennifer Martin, Colette Oliver, and James McNerney, who coordinated the entire event, and they took care of business on the day and took immaculate care of us, and they're always so great to work with. I absolutely love the team at Read Pop. Yeah, me too. Uh, and we also want to thank the How Stuff Works crew who came out to New York Comic Con as well. Our producer, Noel, was there, uh, and, and folks got to give a little wave to Noel. Um, and then our colleagues, Annie, Christian, and Paul, were also there, and they did a lot of footage with Holly on the actual Comic Con show floor. So you can see that on the How Stuff Works website. Yeah, that's churning out, and uh, it was a, an amazing... New York Comic Con is always a, a big, sort of crazy, just because of the size of the crowd event, uh, but it's so fun, and you get to see so much amazing stuff and so many cool people, and I just love it, so... Uh, with all of that said, and my ongoing love of New York Comic Con, Tracy, do you have some listener mail for us? I have very brief listener mail. It is actually about a previous live show. It is about our live show from Dallas on Pierre de Coubertin. Uh, and it is from Lisa. And Lisa says, hi, history buffs. Thanks for the fantastic work on the Pierre de Coubertin podcast. I don't think I could be that coherent that late after a stressful day of travel. At the end of your podcast, you added a note regarding the collision of Nikki Hamblin and Abby D'Agostino, in which they were awarded the Pierre de Coubertin Medal. This is an error. They were awarded an International Fair Play Award uh, by the CIFP. So then she goes on to, to talk about uh, some favorite podcasts and liking that we've had some on New Zealand, uh, and a favorite being the Gnome Serum Run. Um, and uh, gives us an episode suggestion. Thanks so much, Lisa. So, his funny thing. We recorded uh, that live show. Literally the next day was that collision on the track. Uh, about a day or two after that, uh, there were numerous reports that they had been awarded the Pierre de Coubertin Medal, which is why we uh, we recorded that um, that little addendum to the end of the podcast. We were pretty sure we were going to get a whole lot of email about it. And then sometime after that, a whole bunch of corrections came out <laughs> being like, uh, actually, no, that was not the Pierre de Coubertin medal. Um, so our efforts to be thorough kind of backfired. Uh, so thank you so much, Lisa, for noting that. Apologies for that error. <laughs> that very well-sourced but later retracted error. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it happens. You source a I thing know. and then they change it and then you feel stupid. Well, and we got that email, and I was like, well, that's annoying. Not the email. The email was not annoying. I was more annoyed that I was like, wow, okay, we recorded that extra thing, and then that extra thing turned out to be wrong. (laughs) It happens. So uh, thank you again, Lisa. Uh, If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com. We're also on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash History. You can come uh, to our parent company's website, which is howstuffworks.com. You can learn all kinds of uh, stuff about history. We have a number of things about the founders and uh, various things that went on during the, the founding 
of the nation of the United States, then you can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, and you'll find show notes, you'll find an archive of every episode we've ever done, lots of other cool stuff. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at howstuffworks.com or mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 